Sure, you could aimlessly scroll through LinkedIn during your nine to five. Don't worry, we won't tell your boss. Or instead, you could find the most coveted jobs on the Girl Boss job board. Whether you're seeking your dream role or dream employee, we've got you covered. We're kind of like matchmakers that way. Head to jobs.girlboss.com to discover the hottest gigs in marketing, cannabis, finance, social media, and more. That's jobs.girlboss.com. Hello, and welcome back to Girlboss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy, and a firm believer that work should work for all of us. Today, I'm joined by Lola Tomorrow. Lola is a former aide to Michelle Obama, a self-made millionaire, and an all-around inspiration. I had an incredible chat with Lola. At some points, I even had shivers down my spine. We talked about the mindset of success, how to own your value, and choose spaces where you're celebrated. Let's get into it. Lola, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. We are so excited to be chatting with you today. How's your day going? Oh my goodness. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. My day is great, even better now that I'm talking to you. We had a conversation before this, and I think that in the conversation you had said, like, where have you been? And I felt the same way about you. I want to start off with a question that I wanted to ask every single guest that we've spoken with thus far this season, but I haven't gone around to it. So I've saved this one for you specifically because I feel like you're going to be the one person to really give us the tea. What was the worst job you ever had? I would say the worst job that I've ever had was a job when I was in college. I worked at an ice skating rink. (laughs) And what made it the worst job was that I had a boss that's saw my greatness and any and everything he could do to cap it, he would do it. And I would just hands down say that was the worst job because I needed the job because I was in school and I was paying for different things. So you need the money. So you deal with levels of microaggressions and all the different things that I had to go through. You deal with it because you needed that $12 and 75 cent an hour you were getting to pay for school. And so hands down, that was the worst job that I've had to date. I think that a lot of folks listening might feel like they're in that season of their life where they're working the worst job they've ever had, or perhaps they just came out of that season. And I think that a lot of people, when they're in those situations, feel really stuck. And you've come quite a long way since that job. And without getting into the entire trajectory of your career to date, I want to get right to the thing that I'm most interested in is you are the former aide to First Lady Michelle Obama, which is extremely impressive. When you worked as an event specialist during the Let's Move campaign during the Obama administration, you actually had the opportunity to work with her and her team. What led you in your career to the White House? So I I love the way you position these questions because the interesting thing is I believe nothing just happens to us, but everything happens for us. So even one of the jobs that I might've considered not my best job was really something that was putting me in position for what would have been my dream job and then my dream life. And so the way I started working with the first lady is I was working at an organization called National PTA, Parent Teachers Association. I was running their national conventions. And this one year, the first lady partnered with PTA to announce her Let's Move campaign. Now I'm the event planner and my major was event planning from undergrad. You know, I'm the event planner doing what an event planner does. 
I might care about the wrinkles and the tables cloth and the name badges being aligned perfectly. And what I did not know was that White House staff, they were watching me the entire weekend. And so as I'm just doing what comes natural to me, meaning carrying a pocket steamer, and this is a real story, I carry pocket steamers on site to press linen because I do not like to see wrinkled linen. White House, the advanced lead at that time, she came up to me afterwards and she said, hey, we need you on our team. You need to travel the world with us putting events together for the First Lady. I was blown away. I was young. I was just out of college. I was in my early 20s. And lo and behold, two weeks later, I was literally traveling the world with the First Lady of the United States, planning and doing the details for her events. I was on a team called the Advanced Team, and my entire job was to make sure logistically, when she physically comes on site, to make sure logistically all of the different logistical pieces are in place. For example, if you were hosting the First Lady for an event, you have no idea she's about 6'1", 6'2", with her kitty heels, and every podium she stands behind is custom. Now that I've said that to you, the next time you see her, you're going to look at the bottom of the podium, and you're going to see a custom little piece that's there to make it higher. There are those little details that an everyday person would not know. That is where I would come in and the advanced team would come in to logistically make sure she has everything that she needed. That's incredible. Wow. So I think that the two words that keep echoing in my brain as you're telling the story is Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama. And the question that I have for you next is, what was it like working with her? Throughout my career, I have never been at a job for longer than a year and a half two years max. I stayed on the advanced team for seven years. That in itself for a personality type like me, I was really meant to be an entrepreneur. So a lot of times I get bored in positions. I I stayed with her for seven years. And when I tell you every bit of what people felt publicly, it's a different game when nobody's looking and they're the same people. Nobody's around. There are no cameras. This is an opportunity for you to show someone else and nobody would know and for you to still show who people see and people love publicly, it was the actual honor of my life to be able to serve her in that capacity. And so it was amazing working with her. It was challenging. When you're working at that level, there's just certain things that you might get away with at a different level. You're not gonna get away with at the level of serving the First Lady of the United States. So it was challenging, but it was sharpening me at the same time. And so I loved it. That's amazing. So what would you say was the biggest learning you took away from working with Michelle Obama? So I'm gonna give you a story. So we were at Robert De Niro's restaurant in New York. She was doing, I don't fully remember exactly what the event was, but she was doing an event for women. And so before she got to the event, I get a call from her team to say that she's hungry and she needs to eat. Now, I'm so excited because a lot of times she either eats on the plane or she eats before she comes. It's not very often that I'm responsible to make sure she gets food. So I'm like, oh, this is my time. This is going to be the best meal of her life. <laughs> so I'm so excited that I sit down with the chef because it's Robert De Niro's restaurant. So, of course, the chef is taking honor in preparing a meal. And so, you know, he's asking me all these questions and I'm like... Yeah, add that. She liked that too. Yep, add that. She want that too. And so she's now here. I get the call that she's in her room. I go to her room with this meal that has been prepared by the chef. And I drop the meal off. 
and like I'm leaving out the room, going back to the elevator. And I hear someone open the door and say, Lola, come here. And it was one of the Secret Service people. And he told me that she doesn't eat or she doesn't like beets. And I had this beautiful beet salad with beet juice and beet, I mean, beet everything. It's like, she doesn't eat this. So go get her something else. And when I tell you my whole world stopped, because again, when you're working at this level as an event planner, my first question should have been allergies, preferences. My first question, I didn't even ask. Now, some might say, oh, they should have told you, but no, it was my responsibility to make sure because she could have had an allergic reaction. I didn't even think, I was just so excited to feed her. I didn't even think about it. And I remember later that day when we were walking, because it threw things off from a time perspective, because now we had to go prepare another meal. She needed that. And I remember how gracious she was. I remember how it would have been a moment to correct me, a moment to say, you know, it would have been a moment to make me feel away. And it would have been, in my opinion, it would have been okay. And it would have been an appropriate thing to do. But the grace that she had, and even today as a leader, as a CEO of a company, that is one thing I lead by. I give a lot of grace because I need a lot of grace. And so even in the position of power, the beauty of extending grace to your team when mistakes happen, like she already knew I was beating myself up about it. Like I was, what I tell you from that day forward, what I tell you, I knew every allergy, any, if it was a seasonal fruit that she liked, I knew it. I studied her because I wanted to make sure that was not a mistake that I made again. And so for me, that was one of the most valuable lessons that I've learned that I still implement today is you give a lot of grace because you're gonna need a lot of grace. I love that lesson. I actually had a special moment with the team at Girl Boss earlier this week. And I've been an entrepreneur for five years. I have not been in a situation where I've had like a boss. You know, I have clients and I have, you know, a team that I feel like are in some way my bosses and my managers. But, you know, ultimately I hold a significant amount of power and privilege within my role as a founder and CEO of Bloom. But at Girl Boss, things are a little bit different. I have bosses, I have people that I report into. And I think that I've had a Unfortunately, a few little health concerns along the way. And I've had a lot of anxiety around not being able to like meet specific, you know, deadlines or be able to, you know, actually record a podcast because I was in the hospital and the team has extended so much grace and understanding my way. And I think that I try to do that with my team a lot and they definitely give that back. So I love that. So give grace because you're going to need grace. Moving away from your experience with Michelle Obama, I wanted to ask you, you started from nothing. You've been really open about that, both on Instagram. And I've read a lot of articles that you have contributed to in interviews and listened to podcasts. Now as a self-made millionaire, for folks listening, how did you make it happen? How did you go from nothing to a self-made millionaire? First of all, now that I'm on the other side and there's still so much more to go, sometimes I feel a little tricked. I feel like I've been tricked by the world. I thought the way that you got to this other side was just that you work harder, you don't sleep, you do whatever it takes to, you just hustle and hustle and you have a level of resilience. And all of that is important. That is a part of the equation. But the biggest part of the equation is your mindset. Whether there's zero dollars in your bank account or $10 million in your bank account, how you think about money, how you think about your value, how you think about your worth, 
is the only thing stopping you from reaching that next place financially. If I did hear that before, I thought it was just a joke. I'm like, it has to be deeper than that. You're telling me that if I could change my mind, if I can change the way my mind views, especially when you come for me, I come for poverty. So I was embedded in a system and a culture of poverty. And just like there's a culture of poverty, there's a culture of the wealthy. And so what I had to start doing before the bank accounts transitioned is I had to transition mentally. And even at this place, there are still constant levels of transitions that I have to have to get to the next place. Now that I'm here, there are sometimes, you know, cause I'm human, there are sometimes it was like, wait, am I worthy of this? I have to deal with the imposter syndrome, all of that, that everybody else deals with. You still deal with it with more money in the bank. It's still there, it's real. And so I think that the biggest piece of this journey is the transition mentally. The cool thing about what happens is once you transition mentally, you'll start seeing your environments to transition. Who's in your circle, who your friends are, who you share your vision with. Things start to really transition once the mind shifts. And when the mind shifts, making millions is the easy part. I'm telling you, I listen, I wish people could really embody this. The concept of making millions, I didn't know when you don't have it, that seems like that's not true. That seems like that's an April Fool's joke. Like she trying to trick me, no. The making millions is the easy part. The hardest part of this is the mindset. The hardest part of it is once you even making it, embracing that you are worthy and you are deserving. That is the piece to me that is the secret sauce of how to get to this next level. I completely identify with what you're saying, I'm getting chills up my spine as you're saying it, because I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think that reflecting on the narrative around hustle culture and what people are told, I think it's really, really minimizing and dismissive to a lot of folks that work hard in minimum wage jobs, jobs that are paying under a living wage and jobs that are breaking their backs, demoralizing, stripping them of their identity, stripping them of their own self-worth, their time, autonomy, agency, flexibility, et cetera, et cetera. The concept or the, the trope that the harder you work, the more you'll earn and the closer you'll get to that idea of success, it's a trap. We're not going to get into the concept of capitalism and, and obviously the exploitation of labor, et cetera, et cetera. You know, my HR hat would love to get into that, but it's not, that's a, that's a, there's another day for that conversation. But I will say for me as someone that also is a self-made millionaire, the mindset is a big thing that you really need to kind of reckon with on a daily basis. So getting back into this, as Black women, we often encounter unique barriers that other women, especially white women, don't face at work. What career advice do you have for Black women and as it relates to crafting and defining success on their own terms? Now that I've lived a little bit, I think it is so powerful and I think it is so necessary for us as African-American women to demand environments to adjust to us versus us adjusting to the environments within reason, right? So let me give you an example. I used to have a thing about wearing my hair in its natural state because wearing my hair in its natural state as a corporate executive running a $100 million budget. Now, it's more acceptable now, but I'm talking about 10 years ago when I was in the corporate game real deep. Wearing my hair in its natural state as a corporate executive gets one type of response versus when my hair is straightened or there is extensions in my hair. These are facts. These are not opinions. These are facts. And so at this stage of the game, 
if I wanted to wear my hair in a natural state, if I wanted to go get locks or wanted to do these different things, I feel the freedom to do that. And any environment that doesn't allow me to do that is not an environment that's meant for me. And to be okay with that. All money ain't good money. But if I have to lose who I am, if I have to lose portions of my identity and who I am and who God has made me to be, that is not an environment that I want to be in. So my advice is, first of all, we're so blessed that our world has evolved to a place where we can have a conversation like this. And I can tell another African-American sister to embrace who you are and not feel the pressure to be someone else. Because here are the facts. The facts are, you're gonna have to work harder in that environment. Ain't no way around it. That's the facts. The facts are, you're going to be discredited. Forget about what your hair looks like. You're gonna be discredited the moment you walk in because of the color of your skin. So the way someone else might be able to do something and give 50%, you can't be in that same environment and give 50%. You have to go into that environment and give 150%. Bozama St. John, when I tell you I love that woman, I don't know her personally, but I remember the first time I was introduced to her, I was planning a corporate conference. This was like a $10 million conference and they wanted her as the keynote speaker. I remember sitting in a room with 30 white executives about this black woman who had her hair up in the bun with little beads on it and long red nails coming in and being the person to lead the corporate executives that were coming to this conference in a conversation about marketing and diversity. When I saw that woman years ago, she changed my life because I used to feel the pressure to have to be something else. And she's like, look, this is what I am. If you like it, great. If you don't, that's cool too. And I think that's really what it takes now. And I'm thankful for women like her who have been bold to stand up in corporate rooms and be in corporate meetings and be herself. Yeah, there's certain things you will not be able to change about how someone perceives you, period, right? Bias is a big part of how we navigate our everyday lives. We all as human beings lean on our own biases to survive and to just exist on a daily basis. Not all bias is rooted in facts. And unfortunately, we're all on the receiving end of different stereotypes, tropes, or assumptions that people may make of us. For those of you who are listening, Bozoma St. John is the chief marketing officer at Netflix. And I've seen her speak before. And she is, from what I believe to be like 100% herself. And she is one of the few executives, Black executives in tech that is fully for Black people, Black women. And I think that that representation is so important for me as a biracial Black woman, I appreciate the level of authenticity that she shows up with. I think that it's making a big difference. When was the last time you had a good night's sleep? If you have to think about it, it's probably been too long. Fall asleep and stay asleep, then wake up feeling refreshed with the Restore Smart Sleep Device from Hash.co. Choose from a wide range of music, white noise, dream skates, guided rest exercises, and sleep stories to help you get to dreamland fast. And in the morning, a gentle sunrise alarm rouses you awake instead of that ear-piercing radar ringtone on your iPhone. Right now, they're offering a deal you won't want to miss. Buy one, get $15 off. Buy two, get $35 off from December 5th to 22nd. Check out hash.co to get yours today or hit the link in the description. Sweet dreams. 
You're listening to my conversation with Lola tomorrow. Next up, Lola tells a story about her billionaire mentor and some very expensive paper towels. Keep listening. So how can Black women ask for what they deserve? And so the first thing that I would say is I had to go through a journey of learning my own self-worth, learning what I was good at, learning what my secret sauce was. And I think after I did that, I then had to go through the tactical strategies of how to request and demand what you value or what you find your worth to be. Something else that I've learned is that people treat you and value you the way that you allow them to treat you and value the you. When I come to the table now, a few years ago, there was a large corporation that wanted me to come on and be their vice president of events. And 10 years ago, Lola did not know who she was and what she had to bring. Now, they were offering me something that I felt like it was almost $200,000 under what I was even going to consider before taking a position. And at first, they were taken off by it. They were like, okay, that's way... No, thank you. We'll find somebody else. And I was totally okay with that. I was okay with the concept of walking away if they did not see and understand my value, allowing them to walk away because I understand what I bring to the table. Three months later, after them trying to find and hire someone else, they came back and they made an offer to me for that crazy amount that they told me was crazy. They made that offer to me. So I think a part of this journey of understanding your value and it's being okay with walking away. That's what comes with it. Because I can't devalue myself just to fit into your budget. I think that that's an interesting story because I always think about opportunity loss as well. So what is the cost of lost opportunities? When you take on something that you feel isn't 100% aligned with you, what's happening is you're removing space for those opportunities that are. How do people get other people to see their worth? I can only give it from my perspective and what I experience. It's not my job to convince anyone else to see my worth and my value. When we talk about worth and value, there are some people, and, and even for me in a season of my life, where we saw our value bigger than where our experience and our execution was, right? Like it's one of those things where just because you say someone should pay you $500,000 doesn't mean you should just make $500,000 because you see yourself as that. So I believe in having metrics of how I'm measuring my value. I don't just pull a number out of thin air. I do the research. I understand what I'm bringing to the table. Even in positions where maybe I'm not getting paid my value, I'm actually tracking how much money I'm saving a company. I have to give this story. Please let me share this story. I have a billionaire mentor that I cannot share her name because she is so low key. And she is a fifth generation billionaire. And one day I was at her office helping her. She has a family office here in Chicago and I was helping her and she has these, they look like washcloths, but she uses them as paper towels, as napkins basically. And they're in her bathroom. Whenever I go into the restroom and I'm drying my hands, my nature hangs the towel up because the material is so heavy. And so every time I do that and she comes in after, she's like, Lola, baby, throw these towels in the trash. And I'm like, that's trash? And she's like, yes, they're napkins. Dry your hands and put them in the trash. Okay, 
mentally, it used to always bother me that she would throw those really good towels. Like she could throw those in a washing machine. So one day she needed me to reorder those, what she calls napkins, what I call washcloths. She needed me to reorder some for her. Those washcloths were almost $2 each, each. And she ordered them from a company in Germany. And when I called this company, they told me that they were on back order. They can't keep the towels in stock, but we could pay for them now. You can only buy them in increments of a thousand. We could pay for them now. And when they get the next order, they'll ship them out. So of course my mentor is like, order 5,000 and uh, you know, they'll come. And this is the point that I'm making. For somebody like me, yo, I'm going to Target and I'm gonna get that roll of bounty paper towels, $3 for the whole roll, 40 pieces, right? But just because I don't see the value in the $2 washcloth does not mean the value is not there. So is it the job of the person of the company that manufactures those $2 washcloths? Is it their job to go to the consumer that wants to use bounty and try to convince them that there's value in a $2 paper towel? It's not. You can rest in your value. You can rest in what you bring. You can rest in your identity and those who are supposed to see it. Now, it doesn't mean you don't present the facts. It doesn't mean you don't present the data, whether it's through a resume, whether it's through your experience, whether it's through what you've done. But after you've done your part, perceived value does not change your value because one company might not see the value. Another company could see it and see it in a different way. We get on a journey of trying to convince and trying to make sure everybody sees our value that really we're just exhausting ourselves trying to prove ourselves when the real power is in resting in my value. Yeah, I love that. And I think that everyone, when it comes to how we perceive our own value and our own worth, I think that what we forget is that people have different things that they value than what we do. And sometimes people won't see value in what you have to offer because they simply do not value the same things that you do, vice versa. I don't think that it should be on other people to see your value entirely. But I do think that if you are able to communicate, display, and show what it is that makes you valuable and what you bring to the table, then the folks that are for you will embrace those things. They will understand those things and they will appreciate it. I have to ask you, do you believe that you're successful? I do, but I don't believe I'm successful by how most people measure success. How do you feel that most people measure success? The money, the influence, that doesn't equal success to me. I believe I'm successful because I watch my evolution as a leader. I watch how I lead those who are on my team. I watch how my team evolves. Like I'm paying attention to their development. You know, my assistant has been with me three years. I'm paying attention to how she's more confident when she walks into rooms and how she can speak up. Once you understand them, the money part is the easy part. You don't value the money part. You value how you can help more, how you can do more how even the higher you go and the more you have, how the core of your heart is still for the underdog. I always say that in my team, we know in our company, like I believe I am being positioned for the underdog. Popular people are cool. Okay, I don't dislike them, but that's not who I'm being positioned for. I'm being positioned for the person that's been ignored and the person that's been overlooked, maybe talked about the outcast, black sheep, 
I love that. Was there ever a point looking back that you believe now that you were successful, but you didn't think that you were at the time? I'm so grateful for the journey because even my definition of success, it comes from the place in the season of being bankrupt or the place of not knowing where I'm going to lay my head. And so looking back, what made me successful in those very low moments was not necessarily what was in the bank account or the transactions that were happening. It was the resilience to not give up, to have an opportunity to give up and to want to give up and to feel like you have all the reasons why you should not keep going, but you get up. But no matter how many hits that come your way, whether it's health, whether it's financial, whether it's mental, whether it's family, to still have that thing in you that gets you back up again. Yo, I've been successful a very long time. My bank account, Chase Bank, has now caught up with it. But the success has been flowing for a very, very long time, and I didn't know it. So before we get to our Ask a Girl Boss question, I wanted to ask you one more of my own. What advice do you have for women and young girls listening that have big career aspirations, but currently feel stuck? The first thing is I'm going to give advice that I wish someone would have gave me. Even in my moments of feeling stuck and my moments of being in positions that I didn't love, I didn't understand it was all still working together for my good. I didn't understand that when I started this conversation about the job, I hate it. I didn't understand that what was happening in that moment was I was learning how to do conflict resolution and I was learning how to speak up for myself. I had no idea. I just thought I hated the job. But what I didn't know was that 15, 20 years later, I was going to need that same experience in order to manage a multi-million dollar company. So the first thing that I want to do is to confirm that where you are today, you are exactly where you're supposed to be. You are not behind. You have not missed out. You have not missed an opportunity. You are exactly where you are supposed to be. And today, moving forward, I want you to look at whether it's a position, whether it's a business. I want you to look at everything that happens around you. Nothing happens to you, but everything is happening for you. So the question is, how much powerful do I become when I change my outlook, even though I might feel stuck, but I change my perspective to say there's something I'm supposed to learn here. And whatever that is that I'm supposed to learn here, whether it's for you, whether it's the universe, whether it's God, whether it's energy, whatever that force is that's trying to get something to you, what are you supposed to be learning in this space? And from there, I felt like my evolution of getting to the next level was more of an easier journey versus me trying to force it. It's nothing like, where's it at? Where's it at? Where's it at? That's where I was most of my life because I was always anxious for the next instead of resting where I am and embracing that I'm not behind. That even though Instagram might show me other things with other people, I am where I am supposed to be and I will not miss my opportunity. And so that would be my advice for anyone that currently feels stuck is embracing that and knowing that there is greater that is coming, but just rest in the now. Lola, I, I felt like a chill would go up my spine. This whole conversation has been so inspiring. Um, I could talk to you forever. The whole time I've been thinking, you know what? I think I'm going to send you an email later and be like, why can I come and hang out? 
Okay, I was sitting for you. Come, let's hang out. I'm not joking. I'm literally going to send you an email. Like, I'm going to come your way. (laughs) So, our Ask a Girl Boss question is a really interesting one. The question is I'm a manager and found out that one of my direct reports makes more than me. Help. What advice do you have for our Girl Boss community member? Oh, that's a great, great, great question. So I am really big on, I said this earlier, I'm really big on data. And so the first thing is I absolutely think you have to advocate for yourself. I think this is going to be a great learning experience for you to learn how to advocate for yourself. But to before doing that, I am big on data research, right? What does that look like within the company? Is that a company trend? Is that a normal situation? Is the output of what that person is doing, is that is it the same output of what you're doing? So after getting that information, I think that you're going to have to have the courage because this is something that I've also learned when I was working in corporate America. When you don't advocate for yourself, you don't realize it, but resentment and bitterness starts to set in your heart towards that company. And after a while, it comes out. Whether it comes out, you're always irritated, you hate the job, everybody know you hate the, whatever that is. And so I am not a fan of bitterness and resentment setting up in our hearts, especially towards something we can actually possibly change. And so I think that having a conversation after you've done your research and you have your data and you have your information, having a conversation. When I was in corporate America, I started reading a book called Difficult Conversations. I don't remember who wrote the book, but the book is entitled Difficult Conversations. And I read that book at least 10 different times because what happens a lot of times, we want to advocate for ourselves so we know that we're right, but we don't have the strategy of knowing how to communicate. How do you sit down and actually have a difficult conversation about pay? Like this is a conversation that's difficult and you have to have strategy on how to do that in a way that is non-emotional. That's not like, it's not fair, I want that. That's not the place for that, right? And I think that having those strategies, like for what that book gave me, gave me a blueprint of how to do that. And part of that blueprint, the first thing was remove the emotions, right? Remove the emotions of it. Let's make it a black and white situation because the power is when you make it a black and white situation, you put the other person in the position where it's black and white for them. It's not all the, well, she's just emotional. She's sensitive because she didn't get the promotion. She doesn't. It's just a black and white situation. So that's my advice. And for me, from an HR perspective, I'm going to put my HR hat on very quickly right now. Chat with your manager first. And if your manager is not responsive or supportive or cannot help you navigate this, I'd go to HR with this information. And a really great book that I've read is called Radical Candor. It's written by a woman by the name of Kim Scott. And it's a really great book in helping people to better understand how to operate from a place of candor and honesty and authenticity within the dynamic of a workplace. So Thank you, Lola, for that advice. Now, I want to jump into our quick rapid fire question. This is where we get to know a little bit more about you and maybe the things that we can't see on your Instagram feed or that we haven't discovered in today's conversation, which was a lot. But how many unread emails do you currently have? Um, Probably three, 4,000. That's bad. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, what's the last thing you do before you go to bed? I write in my gratitude journal. Oh, nice. I actually picked mine up last night. I was like, I'm going to write in this and 
didn't didn't get around to it. <laughs> but I, I thought for a quick second, I was like, I'm grateful for, and I thought about it, and then I was like, oh, I need to write that down. Um, what time do you typically wake up in the morning? About 5.30 a.m. Okay. Maybe I won't come hang out with you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do lay in the bed for a good hour, hour and a half. So. <laughs> Is this true for weekends as well? It's the natural alarm clock. Wow. Okay. So I, my next question was going to be, are you a morning person or an evening person? I'm actually a night person. I'm not a morning person. Okay. We can hang then. This is great. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, Lola, thank you so much for joining us at Girl Boss Radio. I feel extremely inspired by everything that you shared today. I think that you showed up with a ton of vulnerability and authenticity. And I can't imagine anyone listening today didn't take away some really great ways that they can embrace their own self-worth. Is there anything you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? I think that, you know, the only thing I would love to share is that last question that we got into is all of us, me included, nobody is exempt from this, learning how to be present in our now really being intentional about being present in the now to know that you haven't missed out. You're not behind. You're not less than, but exactly where you are today is where you're supposed to be. I think that's pretty powerful. Thank you for having me. Amazing. Thank you for sharing your brilliance with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my chat with Lola. I hope it left you feeling inspired, energized, and maybe even changed your mind about how you view success. We are halfway through this season of Girlboss Radio. Please keep your reviews and comments coming my way. This podcast is produced by Liz Guber and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming. <laughs>